0: Sometimes when uh, we as preachers, uh, maybe on a Monday morning, look at the passage that we're going to preach on at the weekend, we go, what on earth are we going to get out of that? (laughs) I I think that, by the way, is one of the shortest readings that we've ever done at REC, isn't it? Three verses, so Tom Tom had an easy gig today. Um, We'll make up for it at some point. Um, Let's uh, bow for a moment, shall we? And we will pray. Father God, we thank you so much for being able to be together like this. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would be with us now, that you would shine the light of your truth into our hearts, that you would point us to your son, the Lord Jesus, that you would encourage us to put our faith and trust in him. We pray that you would do us good in these few moments. We pray in his name. Amen. Some of you might have thought that uh, we'd finished our studies in the book of Esther last week. After all, this incredible story of how the people of God were rescued from annihilation reached its joyful climax, didn't it? We saw them parting uh, at the end of chapter 9 because they'd been saved. And I think this book could easily have ended... At verse 32 of chapter 9, and um, just stopped there. Um, but we discover, as Tom just read to us, that there's a chapter 10. It's only three verses, as we've said, and we could easily skip over this little epilogue comment at the end of the book of Esther. Maybe even thinking it's a bit of an anticlimax after the party of last week. But I think the author of this book is closing the book of Esther by giving us a kind of epitaph for Mordecai. And this gives me an excuse, because I do love a good epitaph. Some of you know this. Sometimes people write their own. Winston Churchill apparently did. He said, I'm ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Well, he's a confident chap, wasn't he? Perhaps wisely, his quote, never made it, onto his tombstone or whatever he has. Um, There's a famous comedian, some of you are a bit older will remember, the comedian Spike Milligan who also requested that an epitaph be inscribed on his grave, but in Gaelic. And if you saw his grave, it looks very beautiful. The script is lovely, but when you translate it into English, it simply says, I told you I was ill. So it looks nice, but actually, I told you I was ill. But I think my all-time favourite, this, uh, this is my excuse for giving you my all-time favourite, was one widowed young lady who used her husband's tombstone to advertise her availability. And this is what it says. This is obviously, I've kind of done this. This is not the real one. Sacred to the memory of Mr. Gerard Bates, who died on August the 8th, 1800, his widow, aged 24, who mourns as one who can be comforted, lives at 7 Elm Street in this village and possesses every qualification for a good wife. Very enterprising. (laughs) The real reason, of course, that epitaphs can be very poignant is because every now and again in history, there are individuals who completely change the course of history, don't they? And that can work both ways, can't it? Sometimes for bad, sadly. Individuals who do terrible things, but sometimes for good too. And Mordecai, in the book of Esther, is one such character. If he had not been alive, how radically different things would have been. The Jews living in Persia at this time, the whole nation was saved from being wiped out. And so the author here, Ends the book of Esther with a kind of epitaph that pays what I think is appropriate, glowing tribute to the incredible difference this one individual ultimately made. I want to say three things. First of all, this is an epitaph that celebrates the fact that everything has changed. One reason why this epitaph is so fitting is that it takes us back to the very beginning of the book of Esther. Can you remember that far back? Chapter 1, verse 1. If you remember, this book began with a description of the vastness of the Persian Empire. I think we showed a map, didn't we, showing how it stretched from Africa to India. India. And King Xerxes reigned supreme over all of it. At the end here, we now come back full circle and we return to exactly the same thought. King Xerxes in post-tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. It's almost as if here the description is that the kingdom, if possible, has even grown bigger than it was at the beginning. So the book closes where it began, this vast kingdom with the king reigning over it, in a sense I suppose things are getting back to normal, but there's a significant difference here at the end, and it's this, it's really obvious, the Jews are safer, they're safer at the end than they were at the beginning. In chapter 1, the magnificent wealth and splendor and power of the kingdom and of King Xerxes was the stage for what? His own fragile ego. And his drunken, stupid mistakes. The palace at the start was a chaotic mess. But by the end, in this little epitaph, there's a different atmosphere in the royal court because now Care has risen to be the king's number two. God's people were extremely vulnerable at the beginning, but now they have a champion. And so there's hope. There's a good man who happens also to be one of them, close to the king, And who governs and rules with justice. I think this epitaph is celebrating the fact that everything has changed. But it's not just the new security of the Jews that's in view. It's also true that the king and his empire seem to be prospering too. That little comment at the beginning of verse 1. About the king imposing tribute throughout the whole empire. is possibly hinting at this. Do you remember that in the story, Haman, and it's, you know, it's okay if you boo when we say the name Haman, that, that's what the Jews do when they celebrate Purim. Whenever the name Haman's mentioned, everyone boos. It's like a pantomime. Do you remember Haman had offered to bribe the king with a huge amount of money to annihilate all the Jews? Now the empire seems to be wealthier than it would have been if that decree to kill the Jews had actually been carried out. The kingdom is secure. The cash is rolling in. And the point of these closing words is that all of this is so because of Mordecai rising to prominence in this pagan empire. Actually, everything's changed for Mordecai too, hasn't it? When you stop and think about it, I don't think it's a stretch to say at the beginning Mordecai was really a nobody. Even the way he's introduced in chapter 2 and verse 5, it's like there was a certain Jew called Mordecai. He was just seemingly a random, insignificant guy. His devastated and broken family are refugees. They're in exile. He's not famous in any way. And he rises to become the prime minister to King Xerxes. In this great empire. We we can see something of his elevation being played out. Throughout the last few chapters. In this book. If, if you've got your Bible open. If you flip back into chapter 8. And you'll see there in verse 2. That the king took off his signet ring. Which he'd taken back from the finger of Haman. And gave it to Mordecai. We then. Could go down to. Verses 7 and 8, where the king gives authority to Mordecai to write a new decree that essentially saves the Jewish people. I love, though, verse 15. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. Can you see that things have changed for Mordecai? The royal affirmation and status. And then look at chapter 9 and verse 3. All the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews. Why? Because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces. And he became more and more Powerful, his reputation and prominence and authority grew. In this little epilogue, actually, at the end, I, I think it, it's almost as if the author describes again the vastness of the kingdom and the power of the king just to highlight how powerful Mordecai has become. This, the author is really saying, look again at this sprawling, vast empire If Mordecai is the king's number two, he must be huge. You get that? In verse two, there's actually a little rhetorical flourish. All his acts of power and might, that is the king, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? You know how great he is? Is not his greatness written down in the chronicles of the kings? And this little statement would make a Jew prick up their ears. Some of you will know this. In the Bible books of kings and chronicles, when a king died, the scripture would often say, as for the events of such and such a king and their life, are they not written in the annals of the king? It seems like this author, at this point in history, don't forget Israel has no king. They've been conquered, they're in exile, there's no king. But it's almost as if the author is deliberately referring to Mordecai as their de facto pseudo king. Mordecai is the man. Everything has changed because he has risen to such great heights. The question is why has he risen? And we, we know this is something to do with God's sovereignty. We know that God is, even though God isn't mentioned, we've seen that as we've gone through the book. But this epitaph is clearly trying to answer that question of why. And the reason Mordecai has succeeded and been honored and elevated is surely because he's a different kind of leader. For example... Verse 3, surely is a deliberate contrast with Haman. (laughs) Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to the king. Who else has been second in rank to the king in this story? Haman. We know that this is exactly the seat that Haman had sat in. He had proved to be... A disaster. But Mordecai was different. Just read on in verse 3. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews. In other words, people were scared of Haman, but they adored Mordecai. You get the difference? We we know that in life, don't we? I think we ought to pause here and highlight how unusual this is because it is not always the case that people get promoted and their colleagues love them, is it? (laughs) Maybe you've experienced this if you're in a workplace We actually often struggle, don't we, when someone is promoted. Someone who was once one of us gets promoted above us and perhaps we tell ourselves, maybe we talk at the water cooler in the office. I used to really like him. But not anymore. They've changed. Maybe the truth is the. That we're just jealous. Make no mistake, to rise to such a position and to be so completely loved and admired and respected is no small thing, is it? It tells us something about the kind of man that Mordecai was and doesn't it say something about the kind of leaders that we love and respect and admire? King Xerxes ruled his empire through intimidation and raw expressions of power. Sounds familiar. Haman was even worse. Totally self-absorbed man who abused other people. Both of them knew how to make other people fear them, but neither of them governed in a way that caused people to love and respect them. Another thing to highlight here is how hard it is to be a number two. Haman was a terrible number two. Think about this. You know why he was a terrible number two? Because he spent his whole time dreaming of being number one. Didn't he? He was a terrible number two. In a sense, he despised the kid. I could do a better job than him. Instead of serving and helping the king, he spent his whole time plotting to be him. Mordecai is very striking. His whole approach here was to serve the king instead of resenting it. He did his job wholeheartedly to make the king's job easier. And remember that this 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 is a pagan king who's not even particularly nice. How often we use the excuse, don't we? Oh man, if if my boss was a better boss, I would would do a better job. Mordecai had already saved the king's life and even the other court officials described him at the end of chapter 7 as a man who spoke up to help the king. He was a brilliant number two, even in a hard situation. But I think Mordecai's loyalty is even more striking when we read the very last verse, the end of chapter three. He was he was loved because he worked for the good of his people and, and he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. This tells us why he was loved by his fellow Jews so much. He worked for their good, and he spoke up for their welfare. Mordecai didn't set out to be popular. That that wasn't his motive. He, he, He set out to lead with integrity. He told the truth. He worked hard. He was diligent. He was a man of principle and courage. And he became the champion of his people. But the point here is that he didn't do all of that for the Jews at the expense of the king. The pagan king that he served, for Mordecai, it wasn't a a sense of either or I'm going to do this thing or I'm going to do that thing. Somehow, Mordecai found a way to faithfully serve a pagan king in a foreign empire and to work tirelessly for the good of his fellow Jews, God's people. Isn't Mordecai a brilliant example of a model citizen in an ungodly world? We haven't got time really to fully dive into this, but the Bible has a lot to say about this. It is not good for us as Christians to be constantly complaining all the time about whatever the government of the day may or may not or should or should not be doing. There's a place for challenging. Of course there is. Mordecai did that and averted a disaster. But surely the primary task of God's people is to make every effort to be the best citizens that we can be. I think there's something too here to inspire us in our work. Don't overlook the fact that Mordecai isn't Moses. He's not a religious official. He's not a larger. He's not a prophet or a priest. This is an ordinary citizen. Doing his job, to the best of his ability. Sometimes, maybe it's possible for us as Christians to fall into the trap of thinking that our work is sometimes second best. My life would really count for something if I was a missionary rather than what I do or some kind of more important spiritual ministry. Maybe God loves your job more than you do if you think like that. Do you love your job? Maybe God loves your job more than you do if you think like that. Don't underestimate your the the good that you can do just by being you, exactly where God has put you. Isn't Mordecai a great example of that? So, as the book of Esther ends, everything has changed. The king and his empire seem to prosper. Mordecai is honored because he leads so well. God's people are therefore safe and they love Mordecai to bits because he has their best interests at heart, the end. We can all go home now. Well, maybe not quite. Let me say secondly that here is an epitaph that hints at the fact that nothing has changed. And it will in a minute. In a minute. There we go. An an epitaph that hints at the fact that nothing has changed. We've seen something of the celebration, haven't we? Rightly. We can almost taste the hope of better security for the Jews now that Mordecai is clothed in royal robes in the palace but the king is still the king. Is he a good king? The jury's still out on that one. Did this experience cause Xerxes to fall on his knees and turn to God in repentance and faith? No. No. The people celebrate their deliverance, but in reality, the same drunken, weak, selfish king is on the throne. And remember too, the Jews are still in exile. I, I do love the fact that at the end of chapter 9, they're having a party. And at the start of chapter 10, their taxes go up. <laughs> Does life sometimes feel like that? Just enjoy March, guys, because in April, the energy cap comes off and national insurance goes up. This is how they feel. They're having a party and then their taxes go up. This is what kings do. In this book, this king does three major th- big things. He, in chapter one, he throws a party to raise money for a war that he lost. In the middle of the book, he issues a decree to kill a whole race and then he falls back at the end on imposing tribute across the empire, which, employ, which implies forced slave labor as well as financial burdens. This is the environment that the Jews still live in. I suppose taxes out of those three options are maybe the least worst option for the Jews paying taxes better than being obliterated. But this is what kings do, isn't it? But more than this, it's all so temporary, isn't it? This deliverance was truly amazing in the moment. But we know that sadly, the Jews will find themselves here again. This rescue didn't prevent Jews and many other people being oppressed ever since. And none of this incredible story stopped a Holocaust happening even in our recent history. It is a happy ending but they didn't all live happily ever after. The end of the book honors Mordecai and celebrates that in one sense, everything had changed, but from another angle, it's also hinting at same old, same old. I want you to see something very important in the last line of this little epilogue. The author tells us that Mordecai worked for the good of his people and he spoke up for the welfare, the welfare of all the Jews. The Hebrew word there that's translated welfare is actually the word shalom. And you may know that this Jewish word means peace. I wish the NIV translated it as peace but I can kind of understand why they've put welfare because the word shalom is a a rich word. It's a a word with depth. It it does mean peace but it means peace in the sense of complete wholeness, health. It's a concept that speaks of total well-being. And I, I think they've, le- they've leaned into transferring that as welfare. It, it's much bigger than that. Shalom. The last line literally says that M- Mordecai spoke shalom to his people. He had literally, of course, saved the Jews from Satan's death. But the question is do they really now know the full meaning? And the ongoing reality of shalom. Has peace come in all its fullness? These guys are rightly celebrating. But the world is still the world. And this king is still the king. And we know in fact. That no human ruler. Can ever really deliver true shalom. We put our hope in politicians or community or business leaders. But at best, they can only limit bad outcomes for some of the time. None of them can change people's hearts or make everything right. No human leader has ever been able to break the successive waves of brokenness that humanity experiences. We are very conscious, aren't we? right now that a Hitler was defeated amidst great celebration 70 years ago and yet Europe now faces another brutal dictator. We never thought we'd see that happen. One writer sums this up by saying, it doesn't matter how many wars we fight, how many pounds we spend, or how many prescriptions we purchase, shalom never comes. The the story of Esther is a brilliant but temporary respite. And it hints that further disappointments will come. So, this story is actually asking us to think about a really important question. Who can truly speak lasting shalom into our lives, into our hearts, into our world? Isn't that what we yearn for deep down? So lastly, this is an epitaph that points us to one greater than Mordecai. You may know that Jesus is described in the Bible, get this, as the Prince of Peace. What a title for the Lord Jesus. The Prince of Shalom. The only way that we will know true and lasting Shalom is when the Prince of Shalom shows up and gives it to us. Jesus is where this story points. Now, I want you to do a little bit of work with me. So um, if you've been drifting, tune in. I've been very helped this week to see some compelling connections here with other parts of the Bible. We we were just talking in our life group the other night about how the Bible is one coherent story even though it was written over 1500 years 40 or different authors it's amazing how coherent and compelling it is so let's close by doing a little Bible study okay first of all let me just show you this we've seen now already that Mordecai spoke shalom to his people or for his people but there's another interesting verse in chapter 9 verse 20 We we perhaps skipped over this last time, but um, we read there. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all of the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes—a massive area. And look what it says there at the end of verse twenty: near and far. You get that? He spoke shalom, and he sent letters near and far. In other words the shalom the shalom that Mordecai desired had a huge range it was for all the jews all across the empire whether they lived near or far now for time's sake you don't need to turn to it but let me show you another verse from the prophet isaiah this is now not mordecai speaking but god speaking this is amazing Here's God speaking. Isaiah chapter 57. Peace, peace. To those far and near, says the Lord. And I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest. Whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God. For the wicked. Isn't that incredible? Different author, different time. But the far and the near now isn't describing the vastness of the Persian Empire and the Jews within it. This is describing all of humanity across the whole world. The fact that Mordecai spoke shalom to the Jews in exile is a pale reflection of the fact that God speaks shalom to human beings across the whole world. But I want you to see something here. Isaiah's description here of the deliverance required goes much further and deeper than Haman's plot in the book of Esther. There is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Somehow our lack of peace is a moral issue. Our human hearts here are likened to a stormy sea. You can picture that. Never at rest. And as the waves crash and the waters heave, all the drags of mud and rubbish are dragged up and stirred up from the depths and are churning around the angry raging waters. Does this not sound to you bang up to date? Do we not see in our own world and time the thick, dark sludge of wickedness being dredged up from who knows where? The churning restlessness of it. It is truly a storm, isn't it? There's no peace. There's no... This isn't shalom. But friends, this... This storm is not just outside of us. This churning, restless wickedness is said to be inside of us. And so the real question here is who can calm our individual, troubled human hearts? Who can overcome the restless self-centeredness within each of us? Who has the power to make that stormy sea still? I think we begin to see that if the world is to know shalom, we first need someone, I need someone who can deliver me from myself. The peace of God needs to come first of all to the individual troubled hearts of people. Who can churn, who who can calm the churning of our own hearts and get rid of the muddy rubbish that grips us? There is one greater than Mordecai. Praise God. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, can do it. He is doing it. He will do it. I said we were going to work you hard and do a little Bible study. Let me take you to one final place. I do apologize. It's like the yellow pages, isn't it? Let your fingers do the walking. Let me take you to one final place. Listen to Paul. Writing to Christian believers in the ancient city of Ephesus, I've I've looked at this this week and wondered whether he'd been reading Esther that very day when he wrote this, and linked it to Isaiah. Look at this. This is what he wrote to Christian believers in the first century. He, that is Jesus, came and preached peace to you, to you who were far away, and to those who were near. For through him, that is Jesus, we both, the near and the far away, we all, we both have access to the Father through one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Mordecai spoke peace to the Jews near and far, but Jesus according to Paul, is the ultimate one who preaches peace to the near and the far. He's the one who brings people who are on the outside inside. He is the one who soothes the restless human heart and brings in to replace the churning his everlasting peace. How does this happen? A little earlier in the same passage, I haven't put it as a slide. Paul says this. Hear this. You were without hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Jesus brings us near through his death upon the cross For our sins, all of that restless, churning sludge, He took our place, He stood in our shoes, He bore the punishment that our churning muddiness deserves, so that we could be forever forgiven and know the shalom of God. In the end, The book of Esther doesn't even mention God, but in the end, it invites you to trust in Jesus, the beautiful and powerful Prince of Peace. Let me close with one final aspect to this story that I think resonates for us. And, And it has something to do with the vindication of Mordecai, pointing us forward to the vindication of Jesus. The question for us, I think, well, I, I know this is a question because some of you ask me it because you're always asking me hard questions. The question for us can be this. If the death and resurrection of Jesus really does change everything, why does it sometimes seem that nothing has really changed? Like the Jews of old, we still live in the same old world <laughs> where God's shalom continues to be Vandalized. But think about this. What I love about the book of Esther is that this ancient story actually has the same shape as the story of Jesus and the story of this world. Mordecai was an obscure and hidden Jewish man. That's kind of how the story of Jesus begins, isn't it? Mordecai was hated and persecuted by his enemies. Was that not true on steroids of Jesus? Then there was a great reversal and Mordecai was suddenly vindicated and honoured and elevated to rule alongside the king. Did this not also happen to Jesus? The court of human opinion judged Jesus and sentenced him to death. Our world crucified Jesus and got rid of him. But in the ultimate higher court of heaven, Jesus was totally vindicated as the Son of God. He not only rose again from the dead... But he also ascended back to heaven from where he'd come and his father exalted him to his right hand from where Jesus reigns over all things to save and defend and to bless his believing people. Do you know, I don't choose the songs, but I was very thrilled with the first one today. Crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon his throne. It goes on to say, Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as your matchless king for all eternity. This epitaph, therefore, points us to one greater than Mordecai who reigns alongside God in glory right now. Mordecai was temporarily the man of the moment. But Jesus is the king of all the ages. Mordecai spoke peace and saved one group of people from a temporary death in one particular time. But Jesus came into the world to speak peace and to save people of every nationality from eternal death. And so we Love him now. And we look forward and long for the day when the Prince of peace will come again in power to make all things new. There is one greater, the Morudi. His name is Jesus. Because of him, we have forgiveness. We belong to God. And we have the certain hope of everlasting shalom. The book of Esther invites us to put our trust in Jesus. If you haven't done that, this is an open door. Come and trust in him. Let's bow, shall we, and we'll pray before we sing. Father, we are conscious that the people loved Mordecai because he was different. He governed wisely with justice and care. And Father, we thank you that he, he is but a pale reflection of your son, the Lord Jesus who has done all things well. We thank you for his death. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you for his ascension. We thank you for his exaltation. We thank you that though we rejected him, you vindicated him. Father, would you help us to love him, to trust him, to follow him? And would you help us for Jesus sake to do good in our world wherever we can however much we can for whoever we can help us to help us to do good because of Jesus we pray in his name amen